Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we're going to plug 738 BC into our time machine so we can interpret the present time. Now I didn't make a fancy time machine like Jimmy in the Doritos commercial from Super Bowl 2014. You know the one where the man deposits his bag of Doritos as the greatest time of his life only to come out of the cardboard box time machine and find an old minute man in Jimmy's place. No, to do this time travel, I'm going to enlist just your imagination. Our text will be the entire Old Testament lesson, and specifically where Amos says, Woe to those who are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You may be seated. Welcome to 738 years before Christ. I'll be your guide, and I've given you an outline to follow on page 3 of your worship folder. We're at a period that's only about two decades after the shepherd Amos spoke these words from our Old Testament lesson. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Somebody had to connect the dots when Kalna and Hamath fell, along with the Philistines. Somebody had to remember this prophecy of Amos. We don't actually have a record of the reactions of such a person, but we're going to imagine his name was Jacob. And I'm going to walk you through his reactions as an Israelite to this prophecy of Amos. The goal, as always in a sermon, is for you to then draw connections between Jacob's reflections of his time to that of our time and place. This is called interpreting the signs of the present time. And we should constantly do it. To start with, Jacob wants validation that Amos' prophecy is true. Should he even listen to Amos? Moses tells us in Deuteronomy how to identify a false prophet. He says, And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? The answer is, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or does not come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. It can also work in reverse to identify a true prophet. The disaster that has moved through these city-states is seared in Jacob's mind, and it has awakened Jacob. Amos's prophecy is coming true right before Jacob's very eyes. So he frantically reads Amos's words again. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Jacob knows that Zion, as in Mount Zion, is Jerusalem. And it refers to all of Judah, the southern kingdom. And woe to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Jacob also knows that Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. These two capitals, Jerusalem and Samaria, represent both the southern and northern kingdoms combined. 
Jacob gulps as he immediately accepts his fate. This prophecy applies to all Israelites. He goes on to read, The notable men of the first of the nations, those are just the leaders. Amos was primarily speaking this prophecy against the leaders who are at ease in Zion and who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Indirectly, however, Amos is also speaking this prophecy against the entire house of Israel. Jacob, one of the people, is coming to these leaders for help as opposed to turning to God. But life is too good for the leaders. Two things are happening in Jacob's mind, as should be happening in ours. First, Jacob is examining the description of these leaders to further confirm his suspicion that the prophecy is coming true. We do this by examining the signs of our present age. How are things going in Frankenmuth, in America, or right here at St. Lawrence? The second thing is that Jacob is desperate to know what's coming next. God's word in prophecy will reveal the outcome of this prophecy, and we must likewise heed to the reality of God being the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, you might be wondering why I chose this time period. 738 BC was before the fall of Samaria. See, I put you into the middle of this prophecy, not the end, because we're in the middle of our story. This prophecy comes true when Israel falls to Assyria. And again, many years later, when that region, as well as all of Judah, falls to the Babylon, Babylonians. We could have gone back to either of those points, but those points don't translate well to our context. There have been cats and mice in history. The saying goes, while the cats are away, the mice will play. Israel and Judah were mice. These city-states, mice. Cats are huge compared to mice. And the cats of our Bible stories are Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome. I've taken you to a time between, in a land between, a time when the cats have been away and the mice play. Playtime is running up. Assyria is on the move and will conquer Israel. Jacob sees it coming. We in our time should see disaster coming too. We aren't at the end of our story. We haven't been overthrown, but we have been at play. We're more like a cat than a mouse, but even the cats didn't last forever. We enjoy our toys and we keep living beyond our means. Our national debt is over $22.6 trillion. And yet what's equally concerning is that the total amount of personal debt held by you and me is almost $20 trillion too. In fact, all debt held by persons, businesses, and government levels is almost $74 trillion. We've been at play, and Satan's a bigger cat. Back to Jacob, who's recounting what Amos wrote. O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Putting far away is putting something off. Refusing to believe that it could happen. 
Jacob, like all of us, has made denial his mechanism. God could call any one of us to judgment at any time. But he's also patient and abounding in steadfast love. Jacob has that sinking feeling in his stomach that the time is at hand. The leaders are naive to think that the day of disaster can't come soon. And by doing so, they actually invite violence to their door. Those who put far away the idea that bad things could happen are just inviting trouble. Satan will easily exploit them. Jacob has no doubt that their leaders are indifferent toward the people and God. They've ignored God's call for justice and righteousness and have done nothing to heal, feed, and clothe the poor. And yet, what foolish people they've been. Jacob himself turns to these leaders for help. To interpret our present age, we have to ask ourselves these same questions. Have we become indifferent? Have we ignored God's call for justice and righteousness? Have we taken care of the poor? It's not easy to recognize when you've become indifferent. And our ability to even recognize the poor is heavily diminished. Certainly poverty extends beyond the homeless to our neighbors and even to our own members. The big question for us is God's call for justice and righteousness. Jacob, having dug up the prophecy to read it, continues, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Now, a bed of ivory doesn't sound very nice to us, but it does sound expensive. Jacob goes on, these leaders are people who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Jacob begins to become enraged. We're all going to die, he says. The Assyrian army will reach the outskirts of our towns long before the leaders will care because they're too busy being merry. They don't have time to help the poor, but they have time to make new instruments. This suggestion of mixed priorities hits home for Jacob. Does it hit home for us in our time? Do we see church leaders and church movements that result in bitter arguments and wasteful words? Do we argue over the little things and neglect the big things? You bet we do. That brings us to a crucial point in the text. Woe to those who drink in bowls and anoint themselves with finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Jacob, an 8th century Israelite, draws a connection that's lost on most of us. This section is a description of the Marzea feast. Simply put, this is wild abuse. Wealthy participants are engaging in pagan practices and composing liturgical songs like David and drinking wine by the bowlfuls, not from cups. Self-gratifying upper class had no concern for the perilous state of Israel, which is the ruin of Joseph. Woe to those who are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. This refers to the breakdown of covenantal life. 
injuring the vulnerable in Israel's society and precipitating divine judgment. And it's the same as saying, woe to those who are not grieved over the ruin of us. I wonder how many of you saw U.S. like the United States and how many of you saw us as in all of us. I want you to think about it both ways and perhaps even more so in the way that didn't jump out to you first. Sure, our country is plagued with meaninglessness, but so are we. Jacob, like us, is resistant to the idea that he's living a meaningless lifestyle. We would say that he is secure in his sin. Or perhaps you've heard the phrase unrepentant. Jacob doesn't see the big deal with finding meaning in simple enjoyment. Isn't the dream to grow in wealth and live the good life like the leaders? Jacob is seeking meaning in what he has, does, and makes. How can that be so bad? Problem's this. Jacob's lifestyle is meaningless. Deep down, he knows that he cannot trust these things to give him meaning. Only God can do that. But it took God's law convicting him for Jacob to see that meaninglessness fuels indifference toward God and others. Jacob's mind flashes to how his own life is plagued with meaninglessness. He seeks meaning in all the wrong places. Maybe he doesn't profane any sacred practices, but he certainly overindulged in wine from time to time and used his time and money for meaningless tasks, or worse, for sinful ones. Jacob's eyes well up with tears as his mind looks inward. He sees sin and corruption. He sees ruin. Last week, Pastor Brandt asked, who are the wealthy people in Frankenmuth? To which he answered, we're all wealthy. We have comforts, riches, and benefits here in America that most people don't have. Pastor Brandt also invited us to reflect on this. You cannot trust God and money. Jacob has put a lot of trust in his wealth to give him meaning and to resolve problems. But possessions can't do this. He's crushed by the thought. He's put less trust in God than he ought. He realizes that his money and possessions don't care about him. The pleasures of this world are meaningless and indifferent toward us. They don't care if you get addicted. They don't care if you love them more than you love God. They don't care if they ruin you. We would say that Jacob is finally insecure in his sin, meaning he knows it was wrong. At this very moment, Jacob feels empty. So here's the good news for Jacob and for you. God is not indifferent toward humanity. Maybe that wasn't what you were expecting. Perhaps you wanted me to say more. God certainly could have scrapped this whole humanity and universe project as being more trouble than it's worth. God created the world and we, humanity, ruined his creation. We have no right to complain about anything God does to us or about anything God doesn't do for us. Jacob gets this. The promised Messiah will save Jacob. And he takes comfort in knowing that God is not 
indifferent toward humanity. God alone has obligated himself to do good and to care for us. When we're bad, he isn't indifferent. He disciplines us like a father who loves a child. When we're lost, he brings us back. When we're indifferent, he uses his word to convict us of our sin. When we're trapped in meaninglessness and emptiness, he gives us meaning. With no obligation to us other than his own love for us, God's will is revealed in Christ Jesus. Into a meaningless world, God sent his only son into the flesh. God became man so man could have meaning. Now, humanity has meaning, but only in Jesus. And through Jesus, you have meaning in the things you have, do, and make if they are done in him who died and rose victorious. Jesus equips us to serve and love our neighbor by giving meaning to these things. Luther says, the possession of wealth is not bad. Acquiring wealth unjustly and misusing it, this is bad. I'd agree. The leaders in Amos' day were complacent and far from prepared. They weren't grieving over the ruin of their faith and values. They had no remorse for the way they'd lived. Instead, they sought to find meaningfulness in luxuries and the comforts of life. Instead, they found meaninglessness. And meaninglessness from things fuels indifference toward God and others. Why love God and love others if the goal is all about me? You wouldn't. Elie Wiesel said, The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. From Jacob's perspective, this is a helpful quote. Assuming hate is how God feels about our sin, and love is his gracious acts, indifference is not having either, the good or the bad. Thank God that isn't the case. God is not indifferent toward humanity. He hates the sin and loves the sinner, which is another Luther quote, by the way. In the end of our Amos text, Jacob sees what will happen to these leaders. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. God has turned the ways of the wicked, rebuked his children, and sent the Messiah. Jacob, like all of us, like all of you, has Jesus. The love of God who restores us to our Father in heaven. I pray that you reflect on your faith, the state of the church, and the state of our nation, just like Jacob has, and put your trust in Jesus. Amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.